Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, we're going to be totally upfront with you. This is the most perilous time that we have ever operated in. It is so difficult just to sort through the information that's coming at us, but more importantly, to accurately report the news as a wave of censorship spreads across the nation. If you can help us out by becoming a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com, you will have our undying loyalty. You make us 100% censorship proof. You help us build an independent, vibrant ecosystem for media that can resist mainstream pressure. And again, guys, go to BreakingPoints.com in order to subscribe. Thank you all so much. We love you and we appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots of big stories this morning. Uh, We're going to update you, of course, on what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, Uh, some new diplomatic efforts, also the fallout in the Russian economy. In addition, massive uh, drop in the Chinese markets. Not good. Uh, It's really quite stunning. So we're going to talk to you about that and what is going on there. A truly brave protest uh, unfolding on Russian state TV. We will bring you those details as well as protests um, from some of the citizens in Ukraine that are now in Mm Russian-occupied territory. So um, a lot of courage and bravery there. Uh, We'll break down what's going on for you with Joe Biden, some new polling there and his messaging and some insane comments on The View, like total 
McCarthyite authoritarianism. I mean, it really is wild what is sort of just being casually put out there in the public space. We also have Matt Taibbi on. Excited to get That's his right. take. Of fun. course, he uh, lived in uh, Russia and is a Russian speaker, actually. And it'll be great to hear from him on how he views all of the events that are unfolding. But we do want to start, as we have been, with what is unfolding on the ground in Ukraine, to the best of our knowledge. Yeah, this is always a difficult one. And of course, we've been trying to do these battle updates every show just to give you guys an idea of what's happening on the ground. It can be difficult because what's happening on the ground has been relatively static now for the last couple of days. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. By the way, that static nature may not be a bad thing. So it shows you that there remains intense fighting there in the city of Kiev and around there where Russian forces are continuing to try and surround and take the capital. Over in the eastern part of the country, Russian forces fighting their way to uh, more of the larger towns. I'm not going to try and pronounce that particular one, but <laughs> it matters because they're trying to envelop a piece of the Ukrainian resistance. And then down in the uh, southern part of the country, Russian-backed separatists had been gaining more ground in Donetsk. However, all of this could be a prelude of what we're seeing in this type and the style of warfare over the last couple of days to a possible diplomatic solution. I don't want to get anybody's hopes up, but a couple of data points were out there that made me raise my eyebrows, and I talked to some people, and they generally agree with it. So let's go ahead and put this video up there on the screen. This is a very important video because what you're watching there is the bombing of an aircraft a production facility near the city of Kiev. That's the Anatov aircraft plant. Now, why exactly did that happen? Obviously, it's to deny the enemy. But also, Russia is attacking the defense industrial base of Ukraine. This is not just, this is just the latest example of that happening. A lot of military analysts, Crystal, were looking at that with some puzzlement because they're like, well, in one way, if you are an imperial conquering power, you don't necessarily want to destroy part of what is going to, you be able to take over. The industrial and capacity. To, the industrial yeah, capacity. On the other hand, as you transition to more of a civil war type phase where it's just a war of attrition, this would, of course, make sense to deny the capability of the enemy. And Michael Kaufman, he's an analyst who we've been looking to and has been quite spot on, really, in the last couple of months. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. Here's what he says, and this is fascinating. I have come to think that the Russian military is interpreting demilitarization quite literally as a secondary war aim. They are increasingly targeting Ukraine's defense defense industrial capacity in strikes. So why does that matter? Here's why. Remember, a key part of the Kremlin's demands of Ukraine in any peace process is quote-unquote demilitarization. Now, what we have said is that's not going to happen if that means that Ukraine is literally not allowed to have weapons. However, and the Kremlin has actually said this in the past, let's put this up there, which is that their definition of demilitarization can change. They say demilitarization is nearly accomplished. So what do they mean by that? This was a couple of days ago. What they mean is that if they wipe out what they claim, at least to the eyes of the world, are the offensive capabilities of Ukraine that they found threatening, it would then open the door for a peace process, where at the same time, Zelensky would have to guarantee no entry into NATO and into the European Union, and then no new offensive weapons capabilities. So they are coming in, destroying the defense industrial base. They could then use 
That is the pretextual definition of demilitarization. And that opens up all kinds of interesting diplomatic possibilities, which could signal a much closer end to this conflict than I think a lot of people had thought, including myself. Yeah, I, yeah. I certainly hope that um, that's the direction that we are headed in. I did some digging. Uh, other people seem to be familiar with Antonov or else they were just pretending yeah. to be familiar with yeah. it, but they, I was they're not. They're pretending. Yeah, so um, I, I think people buy it. their planes, actually. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's actually, uh, so it was a Soviet-era yeah. um, company that, of course, once the Soviet Union collapses, Ukraine takes over, it becomes a state-owned enterprise. Um, they've built over 20,000 planes. They're sold typically in sort of, you know, the region, the former Soviet republics, also some to the developing world. They're typically like these large cargo planes. And uh, some of the commentary I saw online was that China and India use some of these planes are probably going to be a little bit irritated that now, you know, the capacity to create new parts and those sorts of things has been degraded by Russia. The other explanation here is that... um, Remember early on, we saw some analysis that basically said, and I think this was some of the propaganda coming out of the Russian regime even, that they were going to destroy Ukraine and effectively said, like, if we can't have it, no one can. Yes. And so when you see this just sort of indiscriminate bombing and degrading their defense industrial capacity, that also fits alongside of that narrative. Um, At the same time, there's breaking news this morning that's quite significant. I'm curious your take on Mm -hmm. this. There are three European leaders who are actually traveling by train to Kyiv to meet directly in Kyiv with Zelensky. Those are the leaders of the Czech Republic, Poland, and Slovenia. Uh, According to the New York Times here, they crossed into Ukraine this morning, hours after a series of loud pre-dawn blasts shook Kyiv. Now, on the one hand, obviously, that takes some courage. Obviously, it's a very bold sign and show of solidarity. However, it's also very dangerous. Um, Kyiv is, you know, a Under city that constant attack. Those is are three, in, those, all three of those countries are in NATO. I mean, those are NATO exactly, heads of state. Right, yeah. exactly. So yeah. on the one hand, you're like, that's courageous, but also if anything happens to these yeah, leaders, then we go to war. Then yeah. we go to war. So, you know, oh, all for the sign of solidarity here, but this is an extraordinarily risky maneuver, not just for these individuals, these leaders of these, you know, countries, Czech Republic, Poland, and Slovenia, but also for the world. Yeah, wow. I, that's certainly does change a lot. I'm literally learning about it live here. So I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, we're seeing a lot of international solidarity that's happening across the world stage. These NATO leaders, probably their safety would be guaranteed. I mean, look, if you're Russia and you're shelling that city when there's three NATO heads of state in there, you're crazy because if a single one of those people dies, that's it. Or even gets nuclear war. injured. Yeah, even, even injured is already like a, uh, I mean, that's, you know, akin to like the Archduke Ferdinand or whatever getting killed. That's it. That's the, you know, domino that falls and then the entire thing is going to go. That's exactly what I thought of too. The other, if the, on the other hand, it could be that this is a delegation not just of solidarity but of a secret negotiation in saying hey look like here's how we could work it out whenever it comes to NATO those three countries you just listed all share at least some border or former relationship with Russia so they could also broker some sort of deal or at least say hey you know we can give you some security guarantee even if you do say NATO obviously there's a lot going on behind the scenes Zelensky is doing a big soft power campaign he's going to be addressing the US Congress virtually he's addressing the Israeli Neset virtually. He'll basically take any, you know, uh, meeting that possibly can across the world. So I don't know if in and of itself it is an important thing. On the other hand, 
We do know, Crystal, from reporting that NATO is likely to have an unprecedented meeting sometime next week in Brussels, where President Biden would most likely attend. So this could be a prelude to uh, basically going to have face-to-face talks before we have an actual meeting of all the NATO heads of state. Wow, that really is a pretty significant development. Yeah, I mean, and I, what I, they I, say, I don't want to say that they're not brave, but that's that you're putting us in a dangerous you're situation. You're putting the whole world in a dangerous right. situation. There are ways to show solidarity without right. creating such incredible risks. Here. And what they say they're doing is offering financial help to Ukraine. Seems like something you could do via Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, the show of unequivocal, the European Union's unequivocal support is what this is about. So, mm-hmm. again, I mean, you have to admire the bravery. You have to expect that if they're going there, they feel like their safety is assured right. and can be more or less guaranteed. I hope so. But this is war. Nothing's guaranteed. Right. Literally nothing's yeah, guaranteed. Yeah, I mean, a Fox News reporter was just, uh, he was, you know, injured yesterday. Ex- that's in the exactly city. right. And I saw some, I know some of the people, specifically Trey Yanks, who's a reporter in Kiev right now, and, you know, I was looking and reading a little bit. What they were saying is there's no front line. You know, the whole city is just constantly being shelled, right. bombarded, no matter where you are. So, you know, it, it's not like they may even be intentionally targeted. Look, I, I would hope personally that there is a you know some sort of deconfliction line where we call the Russians or they call the Russians and they say, hey, we're going to be there and you know what happens if we die. So possibly there could be a ceasefire of some sort of that. I also wouldn't put it past them in order to try and fire around the city while they're there in order to send Just a little a bit of a message to them. But that's right. Yeah. Wow. Three NATO heads of state um, inside uh, an active war zone. That's that's a big, not a that's great a situation. Development. I mean, hopefully, once again, we can look at the two data points that we had pointed to. Zelensky, in a couple of interviews of late, basically saying NATO is off the table. Russia changing its definition of demilitarization. That would, I believe, open up the door for some sort of diplomatic settlement where Ukraine agrees to give up the Donetsk Republic and the Luhansk Republic, as well as recognize Crimea, but then Russian forces withdraw. They get to save face and say, hey, we demilitarized Ukraine, and then they don't have to deal with a massive insurgency on their hands. At the same time, don't get your hopes up too much. This could just be the prelude, um, and then whenever talks fall apart, that's when things get really nasty. We're still very, very, very early in this conflict. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's unusual here is that, you know, the Russian propaganda is just so full of lies and complete fabrication of what they're even up to that's impossible to know. They're changing it constantly. It's impossible to know what their goal is or what their end game is. So um, everybody trying to read the tea leaves on that. It's a tough situation. Yes, indeed. Um, And to that point, there's, let's go ahead and put A4 up on the screen. This is um, the Ukrainians emphasizing some of the shift in tone and tactics. This is from Ukrainian Pravda basically saying, you know, they've shifted more to talking about demilitarization. That language about denazification is has seemed to have lessened, which is good because that was just sort of like an open-ended attack on Zelensky or anyone that they saw as a Ukrainian nationalist. And then uh, the last piece here, as we reported yesterday, there were talks between the Ukrainian delegation, Russian delegation uh, remotely. And as that was going on, Russia continuing to attack. And we did not get any specific signs out of that meeting that there was progress. But um, as Sagar was saying, there are some little possible hopeful movements on both sides of the equation that, you know, uh, God willing, could potentially bring an end to this conflict. Let's all pray for the safety of those heads of state. Yeah, Uh, yeah. (laughs) indeed. This is going to be a very different show the next time that we do it. 
Indeed. Um, all right. So we also wanted to look at what is going on uh, within the nation of Russia as these extraordinary sanctions start to bite. Um, let's go ahead and put up the first element, which is some of the reaction from Putin and from the Kremlin. Um, they have signed, uh, Putin has signed a law to seize foreign aircraft and redeploy it for domestic use. This goes along with something that he had threatened, saying basically, listen, Western companies, if you're going to leave here, we're going to take your stuff. And this is the first instance where they seem to have acted on that. According to this article, it says Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a law allowing Russian airlines to keep foreign aircraft for use on domestic flights. That's according to a Russian state news agency. Um, you know, this means that if they already were sort of leasing these foreign aircraft, they're now going to seize them and continue to fly them, even though those Western companies have pulled out of the nation. This doesn't completely solve their problem, though, because as you guys probably know, planes need a lot of maintenance. They need a lot of parts. They've got to be kept up to, you know, perfect conditions. And so you have sanctions that forbid maintenance. They forbid, forbid updates, support, or the supply of spare parts for planes, um, and, you know, ultimately, as things degrade over time, that could pose a risk to passengers as well. At the same time, you see the Russian economy in fairly dire straits. Let's put the Yahoo News um, piece up on the screen here next. The IMF is the latest organization uh, or analyst to say that a Russian debt default is no longer improbable. Um, this is a direct result of our sanctions on uh, Moscow's, on Russia's central bank. Uh, they say uh, their international managing director said on Sunday that it's no longer an improbable event. They are scheduled to pay $117 million on two dollar-denominated bonds on Wednesday. Now, if the country is unable to pay those dollar-denominated bonds, so they're supposed to be paid back in dollars, <laughs> then uh, they do have a 30-day grace period to make a payment before they are technically in default. Russia has said they're going to start paying their debts right. in rubles. Right. But the bond doesn't allow Russia to pay their obligations in rubles. So even if they paid in rubles, they would still technically be in default. Um, of course, you know, they have been down this road before, and it is very ugly when a country defaults on their debt. Uh, it's not good uh, whatsoever. We also had a projection from Goldman Sachs that Russia's economy could shrink by 7% as a result of the Ukraine sanctions. And it's actually an interesting thing to contemplate. On the one yeah. hand, the way that we've been talking about it and considering it, we did drop a financial nuke, quote unquote, on Russia. On the same, and look, I don't want to diminish it, a 7% contraction in a Western developed economy is a catastrophe for your quality of life and for a lot. On the other hand, it's only 7%, right? This isn't necessarily the same, you know, Treaty of Versailles or whatever type reparations that are being levied upon Russia. So in a way, I think we might actually have the worst of all worlds. We exhausted a lot of financial options with very little off-ramp. Their economy will contract by 7%, but they're still gonna have 93% of their capacity. That's pretty good if you think about it relatively. Their industrial base remains intact. Yes, their trading relationships and all are down, but it's not like they're totally isolated. The Europeans continue to buy their gas and their oil. India and China uh, also looking like they'll be willing to purchase some of their goods. So this is very much not a North Korean state. This is something that could conduct a limited type of business much more so than Iran. So maybe we just cut Russia off from the Western financial system and now their economy 
while yes, they're going to have to pursue you know high levels of autarky and they won't be Western anymore, they'll be a lot more like a traditional Eurasian power with you know a, a geopolitical relationship to the South and to the West. So or sorry to the East. Anyway, all of this is a long-winded way of saying that we may have exhausted our entire financial playbook and not actually levied the amount of pain on Russia that a lot of people might think. I don't think that they're considering that 7%, while yes, is bad and very bad for the people who live there, it's not a catastrophe. So to put it in, um, you know, understandable terms, I looked this up, and during the Great Recession, our GDP fell 4.3% from its peak. Um, That was the largest decline in the post-war era. So we fell 4.3%. This projection is 7%. So you're talking about significantly worse than what was a whole lot of pain during the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. But I think to your point— it's survivable. And so yeah. what you've done is you've inflicted mass pain on the Russian public who had nothing to do with this war, didn't ask for it. Um, and you've created more incentive for countries like Russia and China and others to build an alternative financial architecture mm-hmm. so that next time we go to use sanctions, they're going to have even less of an impact. And you are very unlikely with these measures to really accomplish anything in terms of your goals vis-a-vis Russia. In fact, if anything, um, and this is, you know, I've been talking to uh, Igor Kotkin. He's a Mm -hmm. Russian socialist who um, is there in Moscow. And so he's able to give me a little bit of a perspective of how people are feeling there and what it's like in the city, at least. And according to him, and this bears out, you know, there are historical parallels, This is helping to ease some of the pressure on Putin and shift it to the West because people do genuinely feel sort of under siege. They see the hypocrisy of, well, you guys invaded Iraq and we didn't sanction you. Um, They see the sort of Russophobia hysteria that we've been tracking here. And so you really are, if anything, sort of making it more difficult to accomplish your goals or to persuade any slice of the Russian public that was ultimately persuadable. In terms of the vibe on the ground, according to him, he's, you know, said there's not like a mass panic. Yeah. And partly that's because you have this very powerful state propaganda of like, we're all good, everything's fine. So there are some longer lines. Prices have gone up, especially in things like electronics. Things have skyrocketed like 100%. But there's been a lot of pressure to keep kind of essential like food and those sorts of goods at a reasonable price level. So there have been price increases, but not nearly to the level of things like electronics and things that are, you know, just directly imported. None of this is born from me being like, oh, we shouldn't punish the Russians at all. It's more about, well, what is the efficacy of what we are actually doing? That's it. And so— Look, a 7% contraction, like I just looked it up when you were talking about the Great Recession. The Great Depression was a 30% contraction. So we're talking about a one-third of the Great Depression. Well, what exactly does that mean? And then also in the terms of the long-term prospects of Russia, but also, you know, the domestic populace, which is that the hope was that you make life so miserable for the Russian people that they cause political problems for the Russian government. I don't think a 7% is going to do that. I just simply don't. Well, it's it, enough and, of a pinprick in order to make it hurt, but not enough in order to make I mean, it like, our, an existential that crisis. That was our strategy in Iran. It didn't work. That right. was our strategy in North Korea. It didn't work. That was a strategy in Cuba. It didn't work. So even if they were causing you know, 30 40% GDP shrinkage, 
we just haven't seen a track record of sanctions being deployed in a way that is actually effective in accomplishing our foreign policy goals. And in the meantime, you are creating a lot of pain for um, you know people who really aren't to blame here. You can, on the one hand, say, oh, it's it's just the Kremlin and the oligarchs who are control of everything. The public really has no say. And then on the other hand, you know, make everybody sort of complicit in their actions. So. Both from a moral perspective, there's an issue, but you know you could p- potentially justify it if it was going to bring an end to the war yeah, and if I, it was going to keep contagion look, I think it's, from spreading. I think it's an open question. And so yeah. I think when you look at it tactically, you also find the strategy to be quite yeah. wanting. Well, I just think that people should calibrate expectations because if we, you know, if you were to ask your average person on the street, they'd be like, "Oh man, we threw everything we did." And I'd be like, "Well, what if I told you you only contracted by seven percent and that they're going to continue fighting and then build out this alternative ecosystem?" They'd be like, hmm, "Well, I, I didn't know that." Is is there any more that we can throw at them? Here's the answer. Like, not really. Like, there's some, you know, on the edges, but not re- to the point where if the Europeans are going to continue to buy gas, like, there ain't much you can do about that. Yeah. So when you put that all together, we might have just created a situation where they're going to be more autarkic and they're definitely going to suffer, but they still have the capacity almost certainly to run this war as long as they possibly need to. There's a lot of cope that I see online. Oh, Russia's folding. Listen, this is a great power. They got a lot of oil and they have millions and millions and millions and millions of people, especially if you look at their history, if their backs are up against the wall, these people will fight literally to the death if you want to go and learn some of that. So I, I would never count out the Russian people. Uh, I think their capacity for suffering is more than any you know possible civilization on earth relative <laughs> to everybody else. And so- we just really need to consider. And you deal what with we're winters like that into. every year, you know. That yeah. creates a capacity. Listen, I've been to the suffering. Baltics in the winter. I don't know how you people do it out there. It's you just know, depressing. There's one yeah. other piece of this that I would yeah. introduce in the conversation, which is that our own financial system has made it much more difficult to go after the people who are actually mm-hmm. complicit and to blame, which is Putin and his oligarchs. I mean, so many of these people, the way that they shelter their funds is using like Delaware shell companies, and what's the other one? Is a South Dakota that's now yeah. the big hotspot for like laundering money and hiding shell companies and hiding what you're doing. And so since we have, this country, made the financial system so opaque and so easy for people to hide their assets and hide their wealth, it makes it so that we have a lot fewer tools in our arsenal to actually go after the people who are complicit and who should pay a price and who should feel the pain. So that's another important piece of this. And of course, we haven't seen any movement from Biden or certainly the Republicans or anyone in Congress to change that system, to make it more transparent so that we could um, have levy much more effective and direct sanctions, targeted sanctions. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to China. This is obviously, again, a very important, you know, geopolitical relationship and how exactly everything is shaking out, nobody knows. Let's go put this first thing up there on the screen, which is that the U.S. has apparently told its allies that China has signaled an openness to providing Russia with military support from the Financial Times. Now, Moscow requested equipment, including surface-to-air missiles. Keep in mind, the Chinese deny this, the Russians deny it, and the Americans are leaking it from a State Department cable, and it's probably an authorized leak. So as to the actual efficacy and all of that of this, or the, you know, the, tr- the amount of truth involved in this mm. is up for debate. Yes. Uh, that being said, what they continue to say from the U.S. side is that the Chinese have signaled a willingness to provide military assistance. If we were to read the tea leaves in relative to current U.S. policy, the U.S. and the Biden administration has seen it that 
before the Russian invasion, they declassified as much as possible in order to, you know, basically remove the the, uh, act of surprise from the Russians and also to use it as diplomatic leverage against them. And to undermine their propaganda. To undermine their propaganda. As well, yeah. It's very likely that they're doing the exact same thing here if the intel is true. So just because it was true once does not mean it's necessarily true. Again, always keep that in mind. Well, the five different types of equipment that they're asking for, surface-to-air missiles, drones, intelligence and related equipment, ISR, uh, armored vehicles, and vehicles used for logistics and support. Now, as we said yesterday, the Russians don't technically need any of this stuff. They're asking for it very likely in order to bolster the diplomatic ties between the two countries. The Chinese military views very uh, fondly any military that it's fought side-by-side in. This is part of the reason that they have, kind of they call them blood brothers with the North Korean army because they look very fondly back at the civil or sorry the Korean War whenever they fought against the Americans and there's a, a ties ties forged in blood which is very important to them the Russians obviously know this too and they're probably trying to get at least some sort of similar type relationship from the Chinese but China obviously has to walk a tightrope and let's put this next one up there on the screen because it just shows you how confusing the situation is China however, through its state media propaganda outlets, has signaled a disinterest in providing weapons to Russia for a brutal Ukrainian campaign. The reason that this matters is that all eyes were on Global Times, and specifically Hu Xixin, who is you know, an editor over at Global Times. I read Global Times all the time, and this is part of our reason we've been talking about state media, yeah. because I know that they specifically talk in English in order to try to signal us both their most diplomatic talks, but also kind of their, uh, their most hawkish elements. And that's what Global Times is. It's like the attack dog of the Chinese Communist Party. So to see the attack dog himself say in this opinion piece that the Biden administration's move was arrogant, but that as a major military power, Russia does not need to ask China to provide substantial military assistance, he says this, quote, Moreover, China is not obligated to promise nor to export arms to Russia, he said in a video. Now, this matters because if he's going to say that they are under no obligation to do so and that they have no promise to do so, and that's the most hawkish element of Chinese state media, that in and of itself is a data point that we could point to and say, well, the official arm of the Chinese regime is saying, or at least pushing the public towards thinking that they don't need to do this. Yeah. That doesn't mean that secret shipments may not happen. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they may not have been like, yeah, maybe, but what are you going to do for us? So it's a complicated situation, and it, but it would change the situation on the ground. Yes. Well, let's parse the language here a yeah. little bit, too. Uh, another piece of what they say is, as a major military industrial power, Russia does not need to ask China to provide substantial military assistance for the limited-scale war in Ukraine. Now, what we do know is the Chinese have previously provided Russia not with arms, but with supplies like tents, winter coats Mm -hmm. for some of their conflicts along their border. So, you know, if you look at the U.S.'s wording, they talk about general military assistance. They don't specifically say arms. So you could read this as basically, in a certain sense, um, going together, as they may provide that sort of military assistance, things like supplies, tents, coats, those types of items, Mm -hmm. but not actually provide arms, which would be kind of consistent with how China has behaved thus far with trying to kind of straddle the fence. Because the minute you provide actual offensive weapons, that's a very different thing than providing winter coats. 
So as I read this, that seemed like one potential possibility, um, you know, one potential possibility. But basically, we're just trying to present both sides of what's being yeah. said here. The Chinese are saying basically, no, the Kremlin, of course, is denying that they even ask because it's very embarrassing mm -hmm. for them that they would have to go to anyone at this point and ask for anything. This should have been, oh, they thought this was going to be over in just a matter of days and they still aren't making significant progress towards Kyiv. Um, but, you know, the White House saying that the Chinese did signal their willingness to provide military assistance. That's kind of very careful language, not saying when, not saying what, not saying how. Right. And the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met yesterday with the Chinese foreign minister for seven hours. We didn't get all that much of a readout necessarily. No, Let's put this up there limited. on the screen. Yeah, like a tiny little paragraph uh, in terms of what they're willing to tell us from a seven-hour meeting. Jake Sullivan met today with Chinese Communist Party Politburo member. Okay, I'm going to skip his title. In Rome, Italy. Their meeting, his title is half of the paragraph. Their meeting <laughs> followed up on the November 15, 2022 virtual meeting. Mr. Sullivan raised a range of issues in U.S.-China relations with substantial discussion of Russia's war against Ukraine. They also underscored the importance of maintaining open lines of communication between the U.S. and China. So a whole lot of nothing that mm. came out of that meeting. And we still, or a whole lot of nothing in terms of what they're willing to tell us about that meeting. I would love to have been a fly on the room. Oh, yeah. Um, the main thing that we also need to emphasize is that China is in a very precarious situation economically. They cannot risk even one-tenth of the sanctions that we've levied upon Russia. I'm going to be doing a lot more on this in my monologue. It's what that means for us. But in terms of what it means for them, let's put this up there on the screen. It is total carnage out there on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. They are having some of their worst days since 2008. They're having massive panic selling. Um, their stock equities here in the United States are down by like 70-something percent. They have a major real estate bubble, all kinds of crazy uh, financialization and short-selling bets on the nickel markets. It's been kind of fun to watch. But yeah, just look at that graph for those of you who are watching. But they fell on off a cliff over there. They got themselves a big old problem in terms of speculation and financial markets. The CCP is trying to run in and backstop as much of the market as possible. But whenever we cover that Evergrande crisis, this is just a very similar kind of slow roll cascade to something that could be really, really bad. So just consider that they're not in a they're in a precarious economic situation where if they were levied with some sort of sanctions or if their trade took a hit, boom, they're done, especially given the COVID situation with them right now. It would put them in a very, very, very tough situation. So it's an interesting um it's an interesting development. China has to choose between being a Russian-aligned power explicitly against the West, even though they are, and we all know it, they haven't explicitly declared it so, and they still have reaped arguably more than anybody else the benefits of the Western international-led order. Oh, no doubt about it. On that. the other side, uh, they could choose to keep with that because it's been so economically lucrative, kind of leave the Russians out in the cold and play some sort of diplomatic game. But whatever course they decide, if they do choose to broker a peace, that's a realignment of the global order. If they do choose to side with the Russians, well, everybody gear up because that's not going to be a fun hundred years for us to live in. And if they choose to side with us, then the Russians are definitely toast in the long run. So it's all three, they have become a great power, obviously, in their own right. And whatever course they choose will definitely determine the course of history. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what was so significant about the essay that we brought you yesterday oh, right. from a state-aligned thinker that was basically making the case, look, 
We're trying to be neutral, and there is no, no neutrality. Yeah, there's no neutrality. That's, right. there, that's just not a place where you can possibly stand. All of our actions, you know, abstaining and the Security Council votes and those sorts of things are being interpreted as siding with Russia. So do we really want to be in this place of being part of the sort of pariah block mm-hmm. of the world with, you know, Europeans and the U.S. sort of more aligned, more united than they've been in a long time, do we really want to be explicitly on the other side of that ledger? And I think that's what they're contemplating right now. And the reason we keep trying to read these tea leaves and trying to figure out as best we can and predict as best we can what they might do is because if anyone could end this conflict, it would be them. I mean, if they really put pressure on Moscow and pulled their support and we're not going to back them in this outrageous war, that would force Moscow's hand and force them to make some concessions at the table and hopefully be able to come to some sort of negotiated settlement. So they really are the key player in all of this for the immediate future, but also in terms of that longer term geopolitical alignment and understanding what the world is going to look like a year, two years, a decade from now. This is this is the moment. Absolutely. We wanted to bring you something that is absolutely extraordinary, which is that on the main live evening newscast in Russia, this is like their main news hour propaganda central, a woman who was, uh, who worked at that station burst onto the broadcast with an anti-war sign. It's in both Russian and English. And she says, you're going to hear it in Russian. She says, stop the war. Don't believe propaganda. They're lying to you. Let's take a look at that. Премьер подчеркнул, надо усилить сотрудничество в рамках союзного государства. А на совещании в правительстве обсуждали, как сохранить доступность лекарницы не должны. So for those who are just listening, I mean, it's an amazing moment because you see the, you know, the newscaster doing her thing in like a live newsroom, looks like cable news would hear. And Swim bursts on in the background. She's got her sign. She's saying no to war. And then, you know, that continues for like two seconds. And then they cut to some other image and I'm sure pull her um, off of the, the set. Um, she also released a, a pre-recorded statement. And by the way, the reporting is she has been detained. And Lord knows what her fate ultimately is going to be, especially with the new quote-unquote fake news laws that they have passed, right. allowing years of jail time for anyone who even calls this a war or an invasion. Let's go ahead and put this uh, next piece up on the screen. So her name is Marina Avs. Uh, Avsyanikova, I'm going to go with. Let's go with that. I'm sorry, sorry guys. Yeah. <laughs> Marina, she's the woman who ran onto that live state TV news broadcast. She recorded a message beforehand. In it, she says her father is Ukrainian. She calls for anti-war protests. And she says she's ashamed that she worked for Kremlin propaganda and she denounces the war absolutely. Um, there was a, a sort of informal translation that was floating around online. Part of what she said, it was very well um very well-written and and well-delivered statement. She said, we are Russian people, thinking and smart people. Only we have the power to stop this madness. Go protest. Don't be afraid. They can't put us all in jail. Mm -hmm. So an incredibly brave stand here by Marina, knowing full well what the consequences could be for her. Yeah, she knew that she was going to be arrested. She literally said they can't arrest all of us. So that's just incredible to watch. And look, we shouldn't exaggerate and say that this is, you know, the 
dominant feeling in Russia. Right. It's probably the minority feeling. Yes. But that doesn't mean that there aren't good people who are speaking out against the war inside of Russia. And I think that that is what is so compelling. At the same time, we should remember that there are now Russian-occupied cities inside of Ukraine, and they are not facing the, you know, we'll be greeted as liberators that they thought. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. This is just an image from the city of Kherson. Uh, there is no, as the, you know, I mean, the, this is obviously a photo put out by somebody who wants you to see it, but go ahead and put it up there. You can see this massive crowd just assembled there in the city square bearing the Ukrainian flag, and that's in a Russian-occupied city. That's the only the latest of the similar type of images. We have the same thing in terms of a video that continues to see people fighting really back against the occupation with some Russian soldiers who are getting very skittish. They are now facing the problems that we faced in Iraq. In Iraq, you know, we took over a country with 150,000 troops. It was a cakewalk, you know, as they predicted. And they were like, oh, now we have to run a country of millions of people. That's pretty scary. And they're... They're meeting that fear right now. Let's go ahead and take a look at that video. So, yeah, I mean, you can see that that's that's not it's not a good situation. It's very jumpy. Things can pop off at any moment yeah. when it's like that. You know, you have some 19-year-old conscript Russian kid. Like, what does he know what to do? He's going to might get scared. Then you've got all these Russian or sorry, these Ukrainian civilians who are going to be fighting back against this. Look, you know, once again, it's difficult to find out. There's a blackout of internet and of electricity in some of these cities, so we don't have a full picture of what's going on. But any of these demonstrations, they pose a big problem to the Russians whenever it's happening. You only have, you know, you can deal with it the way the Soviet Union did, which is arrest everybody, send them to a gulag. I don't think that works in the 21st century. Or, you know, you're going to have to find some sort of peaceable, uh, peaceable settlement with the actual civilians and I don't really see that happening either. So yeah. in a tough spot. Yeah, um, it, that was extraordinary, especially because it was happening in Melitopol, which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a city where they reportedly kidnapped the mayor. Um, right. There's video of him being taken out with a bag over his head um, and, you know, God knows what's being done to him now. And a Russian puppet, puppet mayor installed in uh, his place. And so... Just to see people, I mean, walk going up to these soldiers with uh, gigantic guns and um, fearlessly telling them to, you know, exactly what they think of what they're doing, it is incredibly brave. Um, it is incredibly courageous. And so, you know, these are the people who really deserve to be highlighted, who are standing against this war and doing everything they can to stop it and bring peace. Um, so we're going to con continue to highlight those examples that we see because it really is heartening. Yeah. Um, at the same time, we wanted to bring you some updates on the political situation here at home. There's a new polling previewing um, 2024 that we thought we would uh, we would bring to you. That actually, it's in some ways not as bad for Biden as I thought it could be. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. So if you had a rematch, Biden versus Trump, at least according to this pollster, um, it would be effectively a tie, 44 for Biden, 44 for Trump. Now, if you had Trump versus Harris, he wins. <laughs> if you have Trump versus Hillary Clinton, he also wins. Right. So even as lackluster as Biden has been, 
he still is probably the best that the Democrats have to offer. Um, and by the way, this had this same pollster had um, asked the same question a month or so ago. And at that time, Biden had a little bit of an edge over Trump. So he's kind of faded somewhat. And, you know, one thing that was interesting here in this particular poll is they dug into how people felt about his handling of Ukraine. And, and they were generally fairly positive. He got decent ratings there. But when you ask voters if they agree with the statement that, quote, Biden's mismanagement of the withdrawal from Afghanistan has emboldened countries like Russia and China to be more aggressive, 61 percent of voters agreed. And that is the line that you hear from Republicans all the time. And let me also say that type of sentiment is exactly why um, these wars last for so long, yep. because every politician knows they're going to get hurt the moment that they do the like, you know, the dovish thing mm -hmm. and pull us out of a conflict, they are only ever rewarded really by the media for the most hawkish behavior. And so you see even now with some quite hawkish moves made by the Biden administration, still the drumbeat is always, you have to do more, you have to be strong, you have to do more. Um, so I just thought that was an, an interesting note here. At the same time, the Biden administration is leaning all the way into this idea that inflation has nothing to do now with anything except what's going on with Russia. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Make no mistake, the current spike in gas prices is largely the fault of Vladimir Putin. It has nothing to do with the American Rescue Plan. Back to Wall Street. Wall Street estimated that the and the San Francisco Reserve, Federal Reserve said, analyzed it, said the rescue plan contributed only 0.3% to inflation. 0.3%. That's coming from the Fed. Rescuing our economy didn't cause this problem, but we're working to fix it. You know, Putin inflation. So here's the thing. Um, Good luck. Look, he's right yeah. to say that the American Rescue Plan is not really the issue, but we all know that inflation and gas price rises were happening before For all of this in Russia. So yeah. people aren't stupid. You got to level with them. I mean, they can handle a nuance and complex situations. So I actually thought the messaging that he had before, like that he just had in the mm -hmm. State of the Union about, hey, there are some people who want to deal with inflation by basically making you poorer so you can't buy anything. Right. That's not my plan. My plan is to actually build on our infrastructure and fix our supply chain and take these corporations to task. That is a much better message than what I think is, you know, they're looking for this sort of cheap and easy uh, ability to shirk any sort of responsibility here. And I, you know, people know that Russia is obviously complicating the situation, making it worse. Um, they thus far are willing to, you know, engage in some financial sacrifice because they think it's going to help the Ukrainians. But I don't think that this is going to sell with the American people when we all know that prices have been going up for a long time. I completely agree with you. It's not going to sell. The best inflation-tested message the Biden administration ever had, per their own internal polling, was that the best way to deal with inflation is to build more things in America again. True. And I'll be yes. talking in my monologue specifically about how China's idiotic COVID zero policy is about to make all of us a lot more poor, even though none of, none of us actually signed up for that type of system. And just to give you an idea of how devastating this is, 
for the Democratic Party and for Biden specifically, go ahead and put this up there, which is a Wall Street Journal poll, which is that non-white voters right now are the most likely to say that high inflation in the last four decades is triggering a major financial strain in their lives. And that is giving Republicans a massive edge with them relative to their previous position. Of course, it makes sense, which is that Non-white Americans are disproportionately more likely to be poor. Inflation is a tax upon the working class and specifically upon the poor. Gas prices are a tax on rural working class Americans as well, all of whom are also likely to not be white. And you put that together with the fact that almost half of incomes, less than $60,000, are reporting major financial strain while just 13% of those making $150,000 are to do so. The current Democratic Party's base are those people between 60 to 150,000, the 135,000 crew to the 400,000 crew, the wine woms and all those people of America. When I say base, I mean the cultural base, not necessarily the voting base. These are the people traditionally who have voted for them. And they're all talking within uh, within the story. They're like, hey, look, He literally says, Uncle Joe has put us on a diet. I like to have a steak once or twice a month. I can't do that now. Stevens is a registered Democrat who voted for Barack Obama for president and then Trump in 2016. But he said he's more likely right now to back Republicans because of inflation. Look, the guy voted for Trump, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. I would just say, though, that people don't fit the typical identity politics mold, and they're getting nuked by inflation. And the Biden administration, you know, blaming it on big bad Putin— It's just not going to work, no matter what. You could say we're going to build things in America again, but guess what? It hasn't presented a single plan before Congress. Build back better. Imagine presenting before a major global crisis the exact same plan as you had before. What type of innovative thinking is that? It's idiocy. That was one of the things we talked about on the State of the Union night is like, okay, are you, did you really scrap the old speech? Right. No, you didn't. use this moment to bring people together and paint a portrait of how we're going to deal with this crisis and how we're going to make, come together as a country, make ourselves strong. We're going to invest in renewable energy, you know, nuclear green new deal or whatever, like pull it together and we're going to make things in America. I agree with you that that would land across the board with Republicans, independents, and Democrats. In fact, there's a dude who's quoted in this Wall Street Journal piece who's going to vote for Republicans who said exactly that. That <laughs> he's like, I think the problem is that we don't make anything yeah, here anymore. Right. I mean, yeah. this is something that this is a, a nonpartisan populist sentiment that the Biden administration, like two weeks ago, started to sort of play with. And now they've just rejected it in favor of, oh, it's all Putin's fault. Um, so I, I don't think that this is a smart direction yeah. for them to go in. And I mean, you can't say enough what a missed moment and opportunity it is because you do have people right now sort of really wanting to do something and, and recognizing the perils of the systems that we have built and how they have made us more vulnerable. And there is no effort whatsoever to kind of build on that current moment and energy and consensus to do anything. And so as a result, you know, according to this poll, you have now Hispanic voters saying they would probably or definitely back a Republican candidate for Congress over a Democrat by a margin of 46 to 37 among Hispanic voters. That's devastating. And just back in November, when already there'd been a lot of Democratic erosion among this group of voters— these, the two parties were tied. They were tied, and that was considered a disaster. Now they're losing by nine points. 
Um, and by the way, there's also been some erosion among black voters. They favored a Democrat for Congress by 35 percentage points. That's still a lot. But that's down from 56 points that they favored Democrats back in November. So support for a Republican candidate among black voters rose to 27% when it stood at 12% wow. in November. I mean, these are, like, Democrats can't win, forget about the midterms, they can't win anything with these kind of numbers among working class black and brown voters. And so they better figure out something that is going to signal to these voters that they take their concerns seriously and they're actually doing something about it, not just trying to blame, sh blame shift and treating you like an idiot that you didn't notice that prices were rising before now. Yeah, I think that all those, oh, this is the thing about why are they having such a missed opportunity? They could actually propose something ambitious. And okay, let's say you wanna break the logjam. The only way to do it is to put something that has gen actual bipartisan support and then dare you know the Susan Collins, the Joe Manchins and mm -hmm. all of them to vote against it without giving them any sort of excuse. I went ahead and checked. There are several Republicans on the record who are pro-nuclear power. You know, I didn't know that South Carolina gets a, like half of its power from nuclear. Hmm. They have all kinds of these power plants uh, down in the South. Tim Scott is pro-nuclear. Okay, go to his office. Let's talk about it. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that you could try and talk about and then say, hey, Joe Manchin, you really gonna vote against us? Really? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. You're going to deny clean power, uh, clean, cheap power to the people of West Virginia? Be my guest. These are the types of things where when you would actually put them on the spot, it could change the whole map. And more importantly, you would show the American people you're trying to do something about it. But right now, look, there's been a temporary drop in gas price. Thank God. It's like, I think, 10 cents, whatever, drop um, in the last couple of days. <laughs> take what Brent, we can get. <laughs> yeah, we'll take what we can get. It's still above $4 a gallon. Brent crude is uh, going below $100 a barrel. There's a lot of different re reasons for that. It could still spike up to $150. It remains unclear exactly what's happening. But people are paying a lot of money for food, for gas. These are all areas where we could have more cattle in America. Why do we buy all these cattle from Uruguay or whatever? Or why exactly do we have it so that, you know, we're importing all this oil from Saudi Arabia who we don't like and we have to go hat in hand over to the king who slaps him in the face and doesn't even accept his phone call. Nobody, everybody's willing to have that discussion, but nobody's willing to give you an answer right now. And in that environment, the Dems are toast and the alternative is always going to win. And that's the GOP. My warning to the GOP would be, though, if your messages do nothing about it, which is mostly what it is whenever you're in power, then good luck because then the Dems are going to win. Well, and we have this endless cycle of nothing. Their message in some corners is even worse than do nothing. If you're listening to the Rick Scott plan, mm -hmm. your oh, message right. is let's actually tax working class yeah, people. True. It's like a throwback to the mm -hmm. whole Mitt Romney, 47% um, you know, are the takers kind of <laughs> nonsense. So good luck with that, y'all. See how, see how quickly that changes these dynamics back in the other direction. Yes. Okay, let's go ahead and move on. Um, this is not just about The View. This is about a repulsive and disgusting McCarthyite sentiment, which is sweeping elite liberalism. At The View, it just goes to show you that elite liberalism is now being channeled into their popular cultural elements and trying to spread this message to the masses. So let's go ahead and start with this from The View, where they call for a literal investigation by the U.S. government into people who are questioning the official government narrative on Ukraine. Let's take a listen. 
all. And look, I, I, but I think that's an incredibly relevant question. Yeah. And I think DOJ, in the same way that it is uh, setting up a task force to investigate oligarchs, should look into people who are Russian propagandists and shilling for Putin. That's being, if you are a foreign asset uh, to a dictator, mm-hmm. it should be investigated. In fact, I remember when Tulsi Gabbard, mm-hmm. and I even hate that we're discussing it because I think to myself, who is this woman? Yeah. They used to arrest people for doing stuff like this. If they thought you were uh, colluding with a Russian agent, if they thought you were putting out information or taking information and handing over to Russia, yeah. they used to actually investigate stuff like this. And I guess now, you know, there seems to be no bars and people are not being told to hate Putin. This they is disgusting. They used to arrest yeah. people for stuff like right. this. Right. And this started with Mitt Romney. Let's go to put this up there on the screen who says, quote, Tulsi Gabbard is parroting false Russian propaganda. Her treasonous lies may well cost lives. Look, here's the thing. We don't know a goddamn thing about what's going on with these Ukrainian biolabs. And yeah, there's a lot of propaganda on both sides that are flying around about them. That being said, treason is a crime punishable by death. And that is what you are accusing a member of the U.S. Armed Forces of. Even worse, you can disagree with somebody without saying that they are a traitor to their government. Yeah. You Look, we live in a free country with freedom of speech where people can and should be allowed to basically say whatever they want. I will go as far as saying that if somebody is parroting straight up Russian lies, they should still not be prosecuted for treason. Of course. You know why? Because that's happened before in the Civil War and World War One and World War Two and the Vietnam War. And in any of those cases, we were better off for having free and open discussion rather than, you know, censoring any outright uh, opinion that we don't agree with. That's the cost of living in a free society. And if you're actually confident in what you believe, then you don't have to go around accusing people of treason. So like we said, it, regardless of the merits, to put this out there in the minds of millions of people is so incredibly dangerous. They're calling for the use of the state against their political it's opponents. insane. It is insane. And I re- recall, I seem to remember during the uh, Trump 2016 campaign when, you know, the lock her up chant, mm-hmm. there was a lot of concern about, you know, vindictive <laughs> use of true. the state right. to criminalize your political opponents. And I would just say, yes, that was grotesque then. And it was is grotesque now. What's really shocking is that you have this whole panel of women who are supposed to have, you know, ideological diversity. Mm-hmm. And not one of them is like, Hold yeah, on a second. Like, hey, that's a little crazy. Wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> We're now calling, like casually calling to arrest Tulsi Gabbard <laughs> yeah. and Tucker Carlson because right. they said some things we don't like. Like, what are we doing exactly here? And it does show you the way that liberalism and desire to be like on the right side of history and get it right with regards to polite society and be tougher and stronger with regards to doing the right thing, how that can quickly slide into, yes, authoritarianism and fascism. I mean, you see it really unfolding right now in real time, where some of the most grotesque xenophobes, people like Eric Swalwell, who are just casually calling to like ban every Russian student from the country. People are calling for, you know, banning any Russian ownership of anything and kicking 20-year-old piano players out of concert. I mean, this sort of mindset is really exposing something ugly and dangerous. Um, So, yeah, this is an extraordinarily 
an extraordinarily bad direction for things to go in where you can't handle someone saying something that you don't like, that you think is untrue, that you disagree with, that you think sounds a little bit like some other country. And so you can't handle that. You have to actually criminalize and jail them. Yeah. What kind of, like, again, you know, we talk a lot about democracies around the world and being a democracy and believing in democracy. Like, what type of a democracy is so self-conscious that you can't deal with a couple people having a, a different point of view and saying things that you don't like, even things that may be offensive, even things that may be completely wrong? You can't handle that. I also like the moment when she acknowledges, like, you know, we're actually just giving this point of view more attention right now. Yeah, well, yeah, you're They right. do that all the time. Yeah, yeah, they sorry. did this with Trump, too, all the time. They're like, I can't believe we're talking about mm -hmm. this. But then we're going to spend the whole show talking about this. Yeah, and, you know, of course, so many people are crawling out of the woodwork. Peter Strzok, mm. you guys might remember him, the FBI, the disgraced FBI agent there. who uh, had an affair. And then all the texts, obviously, that were at the heart of Russiagate. Look what he put out yesterday. Let's put this up there. So he compares Tulsi Gabbard saying, quote, Ukraine isn't actually a democracy to Tucker Carlson saying, quote, not that Ukraine is a democracy and says, not are they coordinating, rather who is coordinating? All right, look, you freaking genius. It does not take a coordination to state the basic fact that, yeah, Ukraine is a corrupt country. Ukraine did have some problems in terms of uh, corruption, crackdown on domestic political opponents, and more. And having an argument and whether that's democracy or not, okay, that's fine. I think it's up in the air. Uh, but that is, should be part of the discussion, especially when people like him are saying that the United States has a responsibility, basically, to engage in war on behalf of that country. We should then tell, well, like, who are our allies? What do they really stand for? And obviously, it's a very gray area in all of this. And I don't think that the Ukrainians are, you know, I, I'm not saying here that the Ukrainians deserved it. I'm not saying that the Russians aren't the bad guy in this situation. I think that they are. I'm acknowledging that life is very complicated. And they are accusing anybody who's even stating that basic fact, or sure, even in both of these cases, hyperbolizing it. That doesn't mean that they're being coordinated agents. Implying conspiracy also implies crime. And worse, it implies it has to be cracked down upon. Yeah. You put the, all of these together and you're seeing a call for political, basically government violence and you know use of the state in order to criminalize any alternative opinion or explanation which should be allowed in a free and a vibrant democracy. Um, it's some real tinfoil hat kind of crap yeah, it's that just, Peter Strzok it's is. A, it's low IQ. Is, That's the other Yeah, thing. is alleging here. Right. But everybody's primed, for, I shouldn't say everybody. There's a lot of the population that's primed for it after years of Russiagate conspiracy where you were seeing like a Kremlin agent and, you know, the hands of Putin manipulating every single thing that was happening in our politics and apparently, you know, in the right. Canadian trucker con convoy as well. We brought you that too. I mean, listen, it's not hard. Engage with what they're saying. My issue is I don't know why there's a fixation on the democratic norms or lack thereof in Ukraine because it doesn't justify, like, I don't see how that changes the situation with what Russia is doing to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So I do think the whole conversation is a bit of a distraction. But you can also just directly engage with it. You know, it, uh, there is significant corruption. They are a sort of fledgling democracy. There have been troubling crackdowns on political opponents. Um, there's been troubling crackdown on independent media. By the way, we can also say we've got our own issues with democracy mm -hmm. here in this country and the will of the people not being represented. 
there. Is that hard? No, it's not. <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, and we give these people like, we give people so much power by pretending that they're so important that we can't even allow them to have a voice or a platform whatsoever. We have to criminalize them. They have to be traitors. The the penalty, I mean, are, is Mitt Romney saying that Tulsi Gabbard should be put to death? Like, this is literal, well, this is that literal is saying, insanity right. and part of the mass hysteria, which is extremely dangerous that we have been tracking here as well, so. All right, Saga, what are you looking at? Well, when the history of the 2020s is written, they will look back at this month specifically as when the world truly woke up to the dangers of globalization. You would think it might take a global pandemic, two years of depending on your peer adversary for critical medical supplies, but really what it took was the outbreak of a war in Europe combined with a massive supply shock brought once again by the Chinese government. The Russian effects on the economy at this point are all well known. High gas price, high fertilizer price leading to food, and possibly double-digit inflation in food products for the well, for the developed world, as well as a very likely shortage in wheat markets. And while devastating as that will be for many people, it is just a drop in the bucket compared to what could come. Russia, after all, is only the world's 11th largest economy, and they mostly just export petroleum products. China, on the other hand, is the whole ballgame. Even 10% of the Russian economic sanctions against China would have a cascading effect on the global economy. And while sanctions haven't touched them yet, the idiocy of the Chinese Communist Party is about to have a massive impact on the global economy and us here at home. China, despite being responsible for the spread of COVID in the first place, has remained duly committed to COVID zero policy and has the authoritarian chops to back that up. So they have instituted, instituted full-scale lockdown and quarantines across the country. They will even strand people with nothing in service of trying to shut down the virus. They had moderate success with that strategy until Omicron appeared. And now, when COVID zero meets Omicron, we are seeing a massive impact on our own supply chain for goods that we consume at home. Yesterday, we saw that news that the Foxconn has forced to halt production at its Shenzhen facility over a Chinese-imposed lockdown over the entire city. This has a massive impact, first, obviously, on the Apple iPhone supply chain. But more than that, it is a symbol of even more inflation to come here at home. Shenzhen has a population of 17 million. It is being shut down over 60 coronavirus cases. 60. These people make the Branch Covidians here at home look sane. The Shenzhen facility for Foxconn is the second largest facility in the whole country. Exactly how long is this lockdown going to last? Totally unclear. Look, according to the city of Shenzhen's own government, they are the largest exporter of goods from all of China, with 300 billion in goods just last year, with a large percentage of those goods related to consumer electronics, from phones, processors, audio, video equipment, basic electoral components. We are talking about one of the most strategically important cities on the planet for production that exists in the year 2021. Here's the thing, this lockdown on the city, it's totally up to the government of China when it's gonna stop. They have not cared yet about economic consequences when pursuing this idiotic strategy. China is restricting inter-country travel, keeping millions of its citizens restricted to the areas that they are from. And in a way, I feel for them. China has not actually done a very good job of vaccinating their elderly population. And they have a very, very vulnerable elderly population health-wise. Combine that with reverence for the elderly in China, and you see a government with more incentives to keep lockdowns forever. 
Of course, the casualty is going to be U.S. global inflation in terms of consumer electronics. It's now even more likely to spike, highlighting the dangers of globalization and allowing a critical part of your supply chain of the future to be wholly determined by the whims of a government, which also loves nothing more than to see our country suffer. What's worse is that inflation is only likely the tip of the iceberg. Just yesterday, the Chinese stock market plunged more than it has since 2008. It is being described as a dot-com level bust over there. Because of our policymakers, we are likely to see financial contagion here at home. Multiple Chinese companies are included in funds traded by major stock exchanges, including some held by the most prestigious pension funds here in the U.S. Great, right? Yeah, totally great. In fact, Wall Street upped its investments in Chinese stocks last year. They were returning well relative to our markets, right? Yeah, except yesterday, they are now down a combined 72% on U.S. exchanges. Yeah, you heard me right. We are on the verge of what feels like a collapse of a global order, a financial order, but really an order of our lives. We have ordered our economy around the cheapest and most efficient stuff in the chase of endless profits. In some areas of life, that's nice. The iPhone is cool. My flat screen TV is cool too. But you know what's not cool? Paying nearly $5 a gallon and now having a huge portion of the public unable to afford the comforts of the everyday life that they were promised and also being threatened with legitimate poverty over inflation. This is a turning point. But the problem is that there is no one to turn us in the right direction. Biden is absent leaderless. His successors and subordinates are perhaps the only people in Washington more clu clueless and useless than he is. And on the other side, just full-scale culture war. Nobody is proposing the ambitious program America needs to get ourselves the hell out of this mess. Look at our own eyes at the state of the world. Has there ever been a better time to build here in America, develop long-standing plans in our energy policy, at least a call to the better angels of our nature to avoid war and have a prosperous peace, to make the pitch that we squarely to the American people, our 30-year experiment with being reliant on others is over. It's time to turn to ourselves. Unfortunately, we are missing this opportunity. And in the meantime, the people who will suffer most are working class Americans getting hammered at the pump, losing 7% of their wages to inflation, planning on driving less and being miserable at home. Soon, they won't be able to get a new TV to at least relax while watching their economy collapse. In pursuit of becoming a rich country for the few, we have made our poor more vulnerable. All we can do at this point is to at least have the courage to admit that we were terribly wrong years ago and reverse, reverse course on globalization. I would say that we don't have a choice, but actually we do. It seems that we refuse to take it. Instead, we have chosen to be complacent and fake anger about whatever the next controversy of the day is for now. And unfortunately, that will probably doom us. Mm -hmm. That's really all I can look at the situation. I mean, 2008 crash in China. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, guys, Joe Manchin really does seem to lean into a just <laughs> cartoonishly villainous persona. Not content with taking a bunch of corporate cash to sink the climate provisions and build back better, now he's coming after any and all attempts to lean into electric vehicles. So here is the latest. Speaking at an energy conference in Houston, Manchin told the crowd, quote, I'm very reluctant to go down the path of electric vehicles. I'm old enough to remember standing in line in 1974 trying to buy gas. I remember those days. I don't want to have to be standing in line waiting for a battery for my vehicle because we're now dependent on a foreign supply chain, mostly China. 
This kind of anti-logic is enough to make your brain explode. I hated gas lines, so let's stick with gas forever. <laughs> and yeah, because of free market ideologues like yourself, China has jumped ahead of us in terms of securing the resources and manufacturing capacity that we need to build our domestic electric vehicle market. Maybe spend some time on that in your position as a United States senator rather than carrying water for the oil and gas lobby all day, every day. So, Manchin lays out this galaxy brain position of prioritizing the terror of hypothetical battery charging lines instead of the actual gas lines that we've experienced. Or perhaps maybe he might be terrified of the obscene gas prices that the American working class is just outright unable to afford right now. Or maybe the way our gas addiction keeps us tethered to terrible regimes like the Saudis or, I don't know, the terror of climate devastation, which the country and the world is already experiencing. But okay. If the imagined battery, battery lines are your waking nightmare, you'd think that you would be into investing in electric charging stations to avoid such a calamitous and horrible fate. Nope, he's not down with that either. Manchin told the Houston Energy audience that he had a, quote, hard time understanding such investments, saying, I've read history, and I remember Henry Ford inventing the Model T. But I sure as hell don't remember the U.S. government building filling stations. The market did that. The crowd reportedly erupted with applause. Manchin's comments are not just absurd, though. They're also extremely depressing. Because Joe Manchin is so much more than one politician bought off by the oil and gas industry, relentlessly pushing their propaganda. He is a living, breathing reminder of the fact that our security, our economic fate, and the fate of the whole planet are all tied to the actions of oil companies and their money. And it's a reminder that their interests have a stranglehold on our politics. It's a disaster. And one that has been made even more clear by our current predicament. As you probably know by now, here's the landscape. Now, you might have noticed gas prices in the U.S. are at record highs. As I write this, yesterday, Americans were paying $4.33 per gallon. Our ban on Russian oil is not likely to help. In terms of other countries increasing output to lower cost, Saudi and the UAE are not taking our calls. Venezuela is still under sanctions and has degraded capacity anyway. And the renegotiation of the Iran nuclear deal is teetering on the brink of collapse. So how about our own domestic production? Well, these guys are certainly raking in record profits, so they could drill baby drill if they wanted to, but they don't. Exxon, Chevron, and Shell are among the 24 companies posting soaring profits in 2021, but uninterested in investing in increased production. Instead, padding the bank accounts of mostly already wealthy shareholders while you suffer at the pump. So we got a situation where in the short term, we actually need these oil companies to produce more, and they won't. And then in the long term, we need them to produce less, and they also aren't going to do that. They're happy to engage in profit-maximizing capital strikes like what they're up to right now. But any transition away from utter deadly reliance on their product leads to an all-out offensive to kill any and all alternatives. They use their paid-off proxies, people like Joe Manchin, to prevent any sort of green options, even to the extent of bizarrely making the case against obvious infrastructure investments like upgrading the grid to accommodate more electric vehicles and electric charging stations. So what would a policy suite look like that could incentivize short-term production but disincentivize long-term production? Well, we talked to an economist yesterday, Skanda Amarnath, about his plan, and it's got some things to recommend it. Use the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to smooth oil prices so that oil companies aren't afraid to invest now. Use financing mechanisms to further incentivize that investment. Use the Defense Production Act to deal with supply chain issues that are also holding back that short-term investment. But this doesn't 
really address the other side of the equation. Now, I can come up with lots of oil company bribes that might get them off their duff now in the short term, but how do we get them to accept a managed decline later on when they are so gigantic and so powerful and so profoundly uninterested in anything other than their own profits? Oftentimes, the simplest answer is the correct one. If people are poor, you give them money. If they're sick, you give them care. If they're homeless, you give them housing. Rather than tweak and incentivize and hope to drive the result we want, we should nationalize the oil companies and directly achieve the outcome that we want, the outcome which is in the best interest of the American people for today and for tomorrow. As I mentioned yesterday, Matt Bruning of the People's Policy Project, he recently laid out the logic. He wrote, private owners and investors are not in the business of temporarily propping up dying industries, which means that they will either work to keep the industry from dying, which is bad for the climate, or that they will refuse to temporarily prop it up, which will cause economic chaos. A public owner is best positioned to pursue managed decline in a responsible way. It's funny, Fox News' Harris Faulkner, of all people, actually came the closest accidentally to making the direct case for this of anyone on cable news. Take a listen. I think you're talking about red tape. And when I hear you say that, I think about one thing. Operation Warp Speed. Come on, we can do this. We did what the rest of the world couldn't with the last administration in Operation Warp Speed. We, we wiped away that red tape. And I say we as Americans, right? And then we got vaccines, plural. Why can't we do that with oil? Yes, Harris, get the government directly involved. Really own Biden by taking it one step further and call for outright nationalization. Let's do it. Now, her comments are instructive because they actually reflect the fact that gas prices and oil production are a direct and vital interest of the American people. Energy production should be seen more like vaccines or public safety or, frankly, the Internet. Essential public goods, where the public's interest is frequently at odds with the dictates of profit maximization. The sort of thing that shouldn't just be left to the whims of private profiteers, but should be accountable to a democratic process and shepherded by a public owner. Production could be managed to smooth costs and set to decline over an achievable, realistic time horizon, all the time socking profits away so that the workers who are sure to be decimated by the industry's decline will be protected. Now, if you go to Senator Joe Manchin's home state of West Virginia, you'll actually see what the alternative looks like. It looks like ecological devastation and economic desperation. The failing coal companies, they left workers sick and they left them impoverished. The hillsides and the mountains stripped. The political system thoroughly captured and blocked possibilities for alternative economic development in order to hold that workforce captive. Now, do I think that oil company nationalization is likely? Even in this moment, when it's so clear that our nation's security, economy, and livable future are in the balance and that they are such incredibly villainous actors, no, of course not. It's socialism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, UBI was once seen as fantastical, and it barnstormed its way into our suite of policy tools pretty quickly, so I guess, who knows? After all, nationalizing the gas companies would be a great way to own the neolibs. And if that can't bring us all together, I just don't know what can. <laughs> the Joe Manchin comments were so profoundly depressing to me because it just shows you how... And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Joining us now, the man behind TK News, Matt Taibbi himself. Great to see you, Matt. Good to see you, man. Good to see you, Crystal. Sawyer, how are you doing? Good Very well. Um, let's go ahead and put your latest piece uh, that we were all reading up there on the screen. You say, Orwell was right. <laughs> From free speech to spheres of influence to our passion for endless war, we've become the double thinkers 1984 predicted. So, Matt, just give us your kind of overall view of how the war is being received and talked about here in this country. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I read this book every time I get really, really depressed. And um, Does it make you more so or less it, depressed when you read it? <laughs> it, it goes both ways. Uh, but but in, in this case, you know, I was really thinking about the, the uh, sort of effortless way in which we switched from being completely enraged about the unvaccinated to feeling, uh, to moving all of those emotions over toward to the Russians. Um, and, and about the succession of panics that we've had in the news in the last uh, five, five or six years, especially, and what that's done to the national character and how similar that is to what Orwell was describing uh, in 1984, where essentially he was saying that the, the ritualistic uh, expressions of anger were designed to sort of keep people constantly in the present and to make them forget the past uh, in any context that might be important to remember. And I think that's that's kind of what's going on with this Russia thing. Um, you know, that they, they want people to not think about uh, a whole variety of uh, background issues involving this story. And uh, it just seems like everybody's in this kind of two minutes hate mode uh, about the entire issue. Yeah, I think this is important, Matt, which is that this kind of freak out that we're seeing. And I'd like for you to bring your perspective as somebody who lived in Russia at the most critical time, really, of modern Russian history, where everything seemed up for grabs. You had these rapacious oligarchs, and then there's a massive financial collapse, but then now everybody has blue jeans and McDonald's. I mean, in the context of people there who you know, probably some of your friends you can still read or keep in touch with with them, how is this kind of Russophobia, kind of two-minute hate madness, how is that going to play over in Russia, given the trauma that they have been through over the last couple, 20, 25 years? I think for ordinary Russians, the, the idea that they're going to be held responsible for the insanity of their leaders is... It's nothing new. On the one hand, they're they're used to it, um, mm. but on the other hand, I think that it's, it's profoundly disappointing, and it's the end of a really a, a thirty-year story uh, about their disenchantment from the West. You know, when I first got to Russia in, I, I was still the Soviet Union in 1989, and when I studied there, I lived there for almost a decade. When I first got there, Americans were held in the highest regard. You, um, if you had a blue passport, you no, you wouldn't have to pay for a drink anywhere. Everybody was hmm. anxious to meet you, and uh, everybody was was so interested in the West and wanted so badly to be part um, of you know the democracy and and you know the the sort of capitalistic plenty that they've been told about. Uh, they'd all listened to VOA, uh, and then hmm. over the course of the 90s, especially uh, when shock therapy was imposed in, in Russia, there was this steady disenchantment with with what the West was up to in that part mm -hmm. of the world. And I, I think, you know, what Putin was really his popularity grew out of the fact that he was the first Russian politician of that era to to stand up to the West. Now, I'm not excusing that. I'm just saying that that's 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 part of the explanation for his popularity as opposed to Yeltsin. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting uh, what you just said there because you said there is an enthusiasm for, like, the capitalistic plenty. That's what we were sold, like the McDonald's in Moscow and the, you know, the blue jeans and Coca-Cola yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but that there was also an enthusiasm for democracy. 
didn't get that part so much. Um, what what happened? Why was the, I mean, I basically know the answer, but I want to hear your perspective. Why was the capitalism part, that part was fulfilled, but the other piece of the, the openness and the democratic reforms that would give ordinary Russians more of a voice in society right now, how did that fall apart? Well, I think it's actually tied to the economic part. There, there were there were two really important moments in the 90s. There was the referendum in 1993, which a lot of international organizations agreed was fixed in favor of Boris Yeltsin. It was it was very close either way, but uh, he, he likely actually lost that election. Uh, then there were, in between, between 1993 and 1996, 97, there was a series of privatizations uh, where companies the size of Exxon and Microsoft, or uh, they were basically handed to cronies of Yeltsin for pennies in the dollar. And this instant oligarch class was created with our help. We, we heavily advised in the process of designing these, uh, these privatizations. There was, uh, in particular, a, a series of auctions called the Loans for Shares auctions that helped create the oligarchs that we hear about so much in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were instrumental in helping design those processes. And what happened at, at, in the wake of those uh, privatizations is that essentially there was a backroom deal that these people were going to be handed these companies and gifted enormous wealth in return for bankrolling Boris Yeltsin's political career and making sure that he uh, prevailed in the 1996 presidential election. And so a lot of Russians, you know, they saw that there was this instantaneous massive wealth gap. In a way, Russia was really a preview of what would happen in much of the West later. Uh, you know, there was that the discontent that we see in, in America and over Brexit and, and places like that, this idea of anger about the wealth gap and elites, Russians started early down that road in the mid-90s because of the way that society was designed in the wake of communism. You know, we were so intent on smashing the old model that we, I think the our advice helped create uh, a kind of warped, uh, almost like a parody style of American capitalism. Hmm. See, I think this is very important because a lot of people just don't really know that much about Russia. They don't really understand how a guy like Putin is even popular in the first place and how his worldview, which look, at the extreme, the paranoia and the restoration of the Russian empire is rooted in a popular sentiment within Russia, which is we got screwed by this whole deal. And that is what gives him the power in order to enact perhaps his most outlandish uh, efforts within the country. I guess from our perspective, Matt, is there anything that the West can do in order to restore good relations with the Russian people? I mean, like, how how would we go about that mm-hmm. if it were to even exist? Yeah, it's, it's a little late now, I yeah. think. <laughs> um, which is too bad because I think there, there was an enormous opportunity for Russia to at least be a strategic and economic partner. Um, you know, even as late as the late 90s, early 2000s, I think that that possibility was still there. Uh, people also forget that that Putin was originally brought in uh, to the government by Boris Yeltsin, primarily because he had helped secure 
uh, the flight abroad of his former boss, the mayor of um, St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak, who was one of the most famous early Democrats in Russia. Uh-huh. And Yeltsin was impressed by the fact that uh, he, that Putin had helped this guy escape prosecution uh, on corruption charges. And mm-hmm. so Putin was really brought in initially to help make sure that Boris Yeltsin would not be pursued on corruption charges because he was facing them at the time um, uh, when he left office. Now, after he became president is when he sort of turned on the West. But initially, he was one of ours. Like He, he was a person that mo- most of the people, the Western commentators, the Western politicians, the diplomats in town. I mean, I was there during this time. The expats they all were saying things like, well, yeah, he was in the KGB, but by the 70s, the KGB wasn't so bad. You know, like, that, <laughs> yeah, right. that, that was kind of the attitude. <laughs> uh, and, and then suddenly, you know, obviously there was a there was a big sea change about that a few years after he, he assumed the presidency, but mm. not initially. I mean, there was like a three or four year period there where, where Putin was considered a good guy by – much of the American population in town, or, or at least a significant portion of it. Right. Hmm. Um, I want to get your reaction to this uh, poll that I saw floating around. It's from YouGov, and they asked the question, which do you think best describes Russia? 42% said communist, 13% said socialist, 11% said capitalist, and 17% said something else. What do you make of that, Matt? Uh, <laughs> That was basically I mean, what I made of it too. It's so depressing. I mean, this, this is this is like the whole. Remember that Donna Brazil tweet? What was where it? She was Donna Brazil. She was where she she tweeted something about how the communists are still dictating the terms of the debate. This was mm-hmm. during during the RussiaGate mess. Oh my god. Um, yeah, no, there's 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 tremendous. Uh, it's almost like this archaic hangover from the the Cold War era, and people have a really difficult time grappling with the idea that Russia and the Soviet Union are, are different countries um, and that the people there are, you know, that there hasn't been communism in Russia in a long time. And, and, and Putin, although he has uh, some nostalgia for the Soviet Union, he's not communist in any way that would right he doesn't want to be, be right he doesn't he doesn't he want to be communist the exactly power of the yeah. soviet union yeah. and the world right. prestige and the sort of imperial nature of it exactly exactly uh, but but certainly not the any of the economic aspects of it are um, are not attractive to him he's he's a nationalist he's a, he's sort of a classic pinochet style mm-hmm. um you know sort of nationalist strongman is what he is but the, the Communists, no, uh, and, and it's 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 kind of amazing that that people that that percentage of Americans still think that way, but uh, I guess they do. You know, use then the example of what happened in Russia, and then bring bring it to our example here at home. We have calls now uh, by popular figures, politicians, to jail or call treason, political opponents, any questioning of the official narrative. Uh, total crackdown on state media, on channels, which look, I mean, I personally, we find it useful personally to find as a newscaster to say, hey, this is what they're saying. This is what we're thinking. This is the Russian propaganda. This is the Russian propaganda, like just so you're aware, but this is what they think. And that could help you then calibrate. When you see all of this happening um, in the context of your experience in Russia and watching the crackdown and all of that happen, are you afraid? Like, what do you... What do you think the consequences of this could be? 
I'm, I'm very afraid. I'm very, I'm, yeah. I'm made very nervous by it. I, I was, again, I was in Russia when the Putin really accelerated the crackdown against the media. It, it actually started much earlier under Yeltsin. Um, you know, as, as early as 1994, there were uh, important investigative reporters in Russia being killed by like exploding briefcases and things like that. There was a guy named Dima Holodov uh, who was uh, who was killed. And but then in 1999 and 1990, when Putin came on the scene. Um, you know, there were friends of mine who worked at places like Nova Gazeta uh, who were beaten and then eventually a couple of them were even killed uh, for looking into things like the apartment bombing scandal. Um, and at the time, you know, there were there was a small minority of us who were saying this is good. This is a really bad uh indicator of what this what this regime is going to be like. He's already beating and cracking down on uh, the media. He's closing up uh, companies like Media Most, which was uh, uh, owned NTV, which was the last sort of independent news uh, TV station uh, in, in Russia at the time. Now he's gone full, full bore into this um, much more extreme version of controlling everything or trying to control everything, you know, outlawing the use of the word war, for instance, to describe what's going on in, in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, I would think, looking at this as an American, that this would be a way for us to sort of re-evaluate uh, our own values and say, wow, this is what we don't want to be, right? Like we mm -hmm. we don't want to be Vladimir Putin, who's so desperate to control every piece of information that um, we're cracking down on everything. And that's, that's kind of what we're not seeing. I, I think what we're seeing instead is this desperation uh, to use every tool imaginable to make sure that, you know, that, that, uh, not only the, the Russian point of view that Russian state media is not seen, um, but that individuals may not even express uh, or even relay uh, what what the Russians are saying about a certain mm -hmm. thing. Uh, and it, it's amazing to me that Americans don't even see the, the, the logical connection between something like outlawing BBC and VOA in Russia and, and, and taking RT off the air in America and Europe. Like, like they... They, they don't see a connection between that at all. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. Thanks so much for watching, guys. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, you guys are the ones who are supporting us. It's a perilous time. Crystal and I have been talking. We've never been more afraid of getting taken off of YouTube for something that we didn't even do, you know, or for trying to present the news in the most objective manner, especially at a time when we are trying to build up as many resources as possible, all these partnerships and expansion for the midterms to give you the best news possible. So it's terrifying uh, landscape out here. You guys are the ones who enable it and we really appreciate it, so thank you. Love you guys, thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career 
And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 